Our passage comes from Romans chapter 14, and we begin with verse 1. Accept those whose faith is weak without passing judgment on disputable matters. One man's faith allows him to eat everything, but another man whose faith is weak eats only vegetables. The man who eats everything must not look down on him who does not, and the man who does not eat everything must not condemn the man who does, for God has accepted him. Who are you to judge someone's, someone else's servant? To his own master he stands or falls, and he will stand, for the Lord is able to make him stand. One man considers one day more sacred than another. Another man considers every day alike. Each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. He who regards one day as special does so to the Lord. He who eats meat eats to the Lord, and he who gives thanks to God, and he who abstains does so to the Lord and gives thanks to God. For none of us lives to himself alone, and none of us dies to himself alone. If we live, we live to the Lord, and if we die, we die to the Lord. So whether we live or die, we belong to the Lord. For this very reason, Christ died and returned to life so that he might be the Lord of both the living and the dead. You then, why do you judge your brother? Or why do you look down on your brother? For we will all stand before God's judgment seat. It is written, as surely as I live, says the Lord, every knee will bow before me. Every tongue will confess to God. So then, each of us will give an account to him of himself to God. Therefore, stop passing judgment on one another. <clears throat> Instead, make up your mind not to put any stumbling block or obstacle in the way of your brother. This is the word of the Lord. <clears throat> you may be seated. We have some uh, great friends who show up once a year, <clears throat> David and Rick Maxson. Some of you know David and Rick Maxson. Rick Maxson is legendary for leading our Camp Olivet event, uh, teaching the children and singing. David Maxson is kind of his sidekick. David is his son, and um, uh, David's been around helping his dad ever since he was just a little kid. <clears throat> One summer when um, David and Rick arrived, uh, there was news, news we hadn't heard of. It wasn't dramatic, but it was interesting. And the news was this. David had declared that he was a vegetarian. David the son. Now, I, I always think that's intriguing, and I ask far too many questions whenever people say things. Uh, my wife took it as a delightful challenge. So now whenever they show up, and they're usually at our house for a good two-week period of time, uh, staying with us during those camps, <clears throat> my wife comes up with all these creative recipes that have nothing to do with meat. And so it seems like, for the most part, meat disappears from our house, although sometimes she'll do a side dish of meat for me. But she does it for David, and she finds great delight in it. <clears throat> Well, one time when David was with us, I just said, hey, David, i got to ask you a question. What's this all about? You know, I don't mind that you don't eat meat. I just like to know, is it, is it dietary or 
is it ethical or is it just a preference? I'm just curious. And he said, oh, it's just a preference. Um, he said, it's not ethical. Uh, I don't have anything against you eating meat. Uh, he said, it's not really dietary either. I, I don't think I'm going to die because I eat meat and I'm going to be healthy because I eat vegetables. I just decided I wanted to do it, and so I changed my lifestyle. I thought that was intriguing. Um, not something I would ever do, ever. <laughs> ever. <clears throat> but David did it, and he's happy. The event that's behind this passage is sort of like that, except way more intense. Way more intense. The context of this passage is that there are folks in this congregation at Rome who are very worried about eating certain kinds of meat. Some so worried that they eat no meat at all. And it seems that the primary concern grows out of this reality, and it was a reality, that if you went to the market to buy your meat, you likely would buy a piece of meat that had been sacrificed to an idol, a temple idol or a temple god. And for many people, that was abhorrent. As a matter of fact, they would not go to the market to get any meat at all for fear that maybe that meat had been sacrificed to an idol. So if they ate meat, they would only eat the meat from their fields to make sure that it was kosher. There were other reasons not to buy meat at the market if you were very orthodox about your dietary requirements. One of them might be that the animal could have been strangled against the Mosaic law. Another is it might have too much blood in it. It might have been, and the list goes on. So there were all kinds of issues for folks who were worried about eating meat. Now, in that same congregation, just imagine for a moment, okay, that all of you over here are those folks that I just described. You're very concerned about where your meat came from, and you'll go to the extreme of not even eating meat at all. And over on this side, all you folks say, I don't get it. An idol is not really a god. That's what Paul said, as a matter of fact, in 1 Corinthians. I don't need to worry about whether or not somebody sacrificed something to another god. I didn't sacrifice that meat to another god. Everything that comes down from us comes down from heaven. Everything that is edible and for whatever reason clean, that's okay to eat. So I, I've got no problem with that. What is your people's problem over here on the right-hand side of the congregation? That's what was going on. Now add to that another dilemma. Some, I'm going to leave it on this side of the congregation, some on this kind of side of the congregation have even more scruples than just the meat thing, okay? Over here, these people who are Christ followers on this side of the congregation, they actually think you need to observe a whole bunch of days, special days, festivals, and all the things that were a part of the Jewish celebration, which were really important. They think you need to continue to observe every one of those special days if you're going to be a true follower of God. You folks over here think, what's the big deal? Saturday, Saturday, Sunday, Sunday, Monday's Monday. They're all created by God. We worship God all day long, every day of the week. What difference does it make? Now, here's the problem. Not that there are two different opinions about these two important matters. 
But these two different opinions split you right down the middle. And some of you over here look down your nose at some of these folks over here. Why? Because they're not truly devoted to God. If they were truly devoted to God, they would make enormous sacrifices like you make. And on this side, these folks are looking down on you. Because they're saying to themselves, if you would just grow up and be mature, you would realize that these are not big deals. No issue there. You're making an issue out of nothing. Just love God and serve him with all your heart, soul, and mind. You can see the conflict, right? Or at least the potential conflict. So what is Paul's instruction to these people? First, he says, you over here, on the left, my left, you over here, don't look down upon those with a weak or tender conscience. Now, even the statement itself almost sounds demeaning, doesn't it? Don't look down on those who are weak. I, I don't know what other term Paul could have used. Uh, but what he actually intended was, there's some people over here whose conscience are tender enough to be wounded by something that your conscience is not tender enough to be wounded by. And I'm not suggesting that your conscience ought to be different over here. I'm just saying that their conscience is different than yours. So don't look down upon them because their conscience is weaker than yours related to certain issues. Second piece of advice he gives to you on this side. He says, I don't want you to look across the aisle at the folks who are strong and despise them or judge them. I don't want you to look across that aisle and say, you guys have no idea what it really means to follow Jesus because if you did, you'd be more careful. Don't do that, says Paul. Either way. There's something else he says. This to me is very interesting to the point of being curious. He says to you on this side, and I elaborate more than the text does. The thing you're concerned about over here, you folks, has nothing to do with the biblical mandate. The thing you're concerned about over here, you folks, really has nothing to do with the essence of the faith at all. You're worrying about details. You're all caught up in them. However, I want to tell you something, you folks over here. Don't go against your conscience. They don't agree with you, and maybe I, Paul, don't agree with you. But that's not the point. Because if you go against your conscience in following Christ, you're sinning. Isn't that interesting? Because we think of sin as black and white. It's either this or it's that. You sin or you don't. And Paul says to wound your conscience is to sin. Or let me do a little more commentary. If you have not yet to come across the aisle to see things, really see things the way they do, don't change your lifestyle. Stick to your convictions. Um, 
Sometimes in some uh, churches, uh, people will call this a personal conviction, right? It's not a conviction for everyone, but it's a conviction for you. And if it's a personal conviction, says Paul, follow it because you don't want to sin. Uh, An obvious illustration of this that I mentioned last week um, that we hear about a lot is the the stand of a conscientious objector, right? I just went and saw Hacksaw Ridge yesterday afternoon. Fascinating movie for those of you who haven't seen it about a young man who goes into uh, the army in World War II as a medic and refuses to even handle a gun because he's a conscientious objector. Well, before it's all over, this man saves an untold number of men from the battlefield himself without a gun, without any weapons at all. Of course, he's, ju- he's jumping into the line of fire, so to speak, without any way of protecting himself. And he gets a, a Congressional Medal of Honor from none other than the President, Harry S. Truman, and the only conscientious objector who had ever gotten one. But he never, ever changed his conscience. And he suffered significant abuse in the army for being who he was. He never told anyone else in the army they shouldn't do what they were doing. He just said, before God, I cannot. I think it's a beautiful example of what Paul's saying here. Here's something else that Paul says. For both sides, okay, for both sides, don't judge Another man's servant. Now that's language that's really not that accessible to us. Because we don't consider ourselves to have masters. But for the most part everybody did back then. Unless they happened to be a master. You served somebody. And you served somebody according to that person's rules. And that person's desires and wishes and and laws if you will. Paul says, you wouldn't walk into a household and condemn person A for responding to life differently than person B when person A serves this master and person B serves that master, would you? Well, of course they wouldn't. They wouldn't interfere in that regard. Paul says, here's what I want to tell you. We all have the same master. Our master is God. And each of us individually have to answer to God. And for those who are on this side, their conscience dictates that they answer to God in a certain manner. And the people on this side, they don't answer to God the same way. But here's the great equalizer. Both sides of this aisle will answer to God. So why are you interfering? Why are you stepping in to be the judge when God is the ultimate judge of all people? Don't pick up that role because it's not yours. We all, says Paul, near the end of this passage, we all live for the Lord and we all die for the Lord. We're all under his sovereign grace and we answer to God and to God alone. I think it's so interesting in the history of the church, there's so many illustrations of how this has played out that have nothing to do with meat, right? If you grew up in the church, you know some of them. (laughs) 
I know some of you have some great stories, but just, just let me remind you of a few that maybe you know about, maybe you don't. Uh, music divides people, right? Um, there's people who really think that it's just wrong to have any musical instruments in church, period. They sing a cappella. Furthermore, they think it's wrong to sing any other songs other than the Psalms. So only the Psalter is used in worship. And that's a matter of deep conscience. It's divided people. Certain denominations are are based around it in terms of their distinctives. Um, A wonderful congregation in this town is like that. The Reformed Presbyterian Church on 1st Street, I believe it is. Wonderful congregation. Absolutely delightful people. I know the pastor well. Rich Holdeman is a prince of a man, thoroughly committed to Jesus Christ. And he and I just don't agree about this. I couldn't be the pastor of Reformed Presbyterian Church. I would go crazy because I'd be thinking about things like the Psalms themselves that says clash cymbals and shout and play trumpets and stringed instruments. Okay, I won't get into that. You can see where I'm going. But it's the conviction of those folks. God bless them. I can't look down on them. You know, for years, about the only instrument in the church was an organ. And probably most of you don't remember when a piano was controversial. But it was. It was a barroom instrument. And you didn't bring that into the church. But later, the piano becomes this wonderful, beautiful instrument And now the piano's elegance is challenged by guitar. So we hate guitars, even though the instrument called the piano was once the barroom instrument. Now guitars are that. Or worse than that, poor old Doobie on the drums. Some people just hate his drums, right? And he hears about it. Believe me, you folks talk. Some people just hate it. We we let issues like that divide us. Um, Further back... Perhaps, still, in this congregation, we had let issues like dancing and drinking divide us. Some people dance and find it a delight. Other people drink alcoholic beverages and find it to be perfectly acceptable, while others do not. I knew a church that actually turned into a denomination over this dispute. Get this, over the dispute as to whether or not their denomination should be entitled Emmanuel with an E or with an I. And before it was over, two denominations emerged from that dispute, the Emmanuels and the I-manuals. <laughs> Seriously, I'm not making this up. There are people in any number of denominations who think that facial hair on a pastor is not a good idea, right? (laughs) Um, There are people in a denomination or in a church who think it's inappropriate to wear certain things or not wear certain things. I'll never forget um, when I first came here, I was informed by a then member of the Board of Elders who will remain unnamed that he thought it was thoroughly inappropriate for a pastor to wear a sport coat when he preached. He should wear a full suit. So in 
the spirit of this passage, I made sure that I wore a sport coat the next Sunday. <laughs> that just was awful. But no, really. Um, that, that was, he was serious about it. And, and he wasn't trying to impose it upon me. So I just, I'm telling you, this is the way I feel about it. It's so interesting what divides us. Of course, we're more likely to be divided over other things in this congregation, aren't we? We might be divided over issues of faith and science and evolution, biology, creation, and what all that means. There's the crow. We might be divided over gender roles in the congregation, the roles of men and women. We might be divided over politics and religion and what that means or doesn't mean for us. And the list could go on. But you know what's similar to us and to all people who have preceded us? For the most part, for the most part, just like them, we think our issues are of ultimate importance. There's the similarity. And Paul says, not all issues are of ultimate importance. So what's um, just a couple of brief lessons with my three minutes left for today? Uh, first, avoid irritation or annoyance with the other. Do your best to keep the other from irritating you or annoying you. Don't be irritated or annoyed by people who disagree with you. That's a challenge, and that's huge. Second thing, do your best to avoid any form of ridicule of the other because it's so easy to quickly slip into ridicule, to make fun of the other. And certainly, don't have contempt for the other. Looking at the other as if they're second-class Christian citizens and despising them and having contempt for them. Here's the fact. I believe with all my heart. And I think at ECC we illustrate this, uh, well, I know at least better and more than any church I've been a part of. The fact is this, we need others to be different than us. We need other people's opinions. If we don't have other people's opinions that are different than us, we'll never grow, spiritually or intellectually. Or to put it another way, just by way of illustration, if you get all your news from the same source, you know you're not getting the full story, right? If you get all your opinions from inside your own head, and those are the people and those people who agree with you, you're not getting the full information concerning the body of Christ, what God is about in the world. So, we're different, and we need the difference in the other. Also, we're called to different lifestyles. What I mean by that, you might not expect. Here's the lifestyle that we're called to. Not to focus on individual rights, but to focus on responsibility towards others. That's what we're called to. Not to focus on individual rights, but to focus on responsibility 
to one another. A famous phrase that's been used and quoted by a lot of people, and sometimes we even wonder what its origin, is this. In the essentials, unity, and non-essentials, liberty, in all things, charity. Great phrase, isn't it? Easier said than done, too, isn't it? But it's worth it. Because we're called to that. We need to discuss things. I don't think Paul would say there's anything wrong with debate, just contentiousness. We need to discuss things. But then when we're done discussing things, let's celebrate our areas of agreement. Shall we? Or put it another way. When we're done debating the issues, let's worship Jesus Christ, our risen Lord. There's nothing that unites us more than worship. Let's pray. Gracious Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you for uh, the challenge of people, the body of Christ. We're glad we're not alone. We're glad we are not alone because we need the other, but we're also glad we're not alone because if we were the demonstration to the world of what Christ was like, we would be impoverished indeed as an example. But the example to the world, the living example of Christ is the body of Christ, not Bob or Fred or Brenda, but the body. So we thank you, Lord, for allowing us to be a part of the body. Help us to be the hand we are, the foot we are, whatever organ you have called us to be. And may we unite together under the unity of your Lordship, embracing the differences but being united by our love for Jesus Christ our Lord, in whose name we pray. Amen.